Hello and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'll be your host today, Nader Dabit. Today on our panel, we have Lucas Heish. Hello, everybody. David Sedia. Hey, everybody. And Thomas Alot. Hello, internet people. Hey folks, I just wanna let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. So today our special guests are us. <laughs> uh, we're going to be having a you know, discussion with uh, us as the panelists, but I think we have a pretty interesting topic that we're going to be um, going over today Depending on how we frame the topic, it may or may not sound interesting to you, but we were talking about maybe full stack development with React, but also we had another uh, name for it, maybe like what should we delegate to the back end? What are some other ways that we might be able to frame this? I guess, you know, if you're from the perspective of somebody on the back end, what do you delegate to the front end? Right. Okay. So kind of like data concerns and um, like, you know, dynamic data concerns and things like that, I guess. So I yeah. guess I'll kick off, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of kick off the conversation. I know that as a React developer, there's a lot of talk about dealing with state. You know, the state is usually the form of some data. It could be also some UI state, but for the purposes of this conversation, let's think about like data. So where does the data fetching, I guess, start coming into play typically um, in your experience and, you know, in a typical React app and like what's the way that you kind of like handle that? I know when an application loads, typically there's some type of initialization process. You might have some functions that go and start fetching data from your API and things like that. So, Thomas, do you want to kind of start off uh, how you think about creating all of this stuff when you're building a new app? Yeah, so the the big difference, the kind of the, the major shift, because, you know, there was the, the old school web that started in like the 90s, and then there was Web 2.0, which wasn't very different. But um, Web 2.0 is like as soon as you load the page, it's like it does all the data fetching on the back end, you know, serves you like static HTML and CSS with maybe just a little bit of like jQuery or whatever to make the, the forms a little bit fancy. But kind of the, the major shift from Web 2.0 to, you know, the modern web apps is making a, a separation between the, the app experience itself and the, the data fetching. So in modern apps, you, you expect the experience to, to load the app instantaneously to be able to see kind of the, the basic UI of the app and then to see the, you know, data fetching or whatever. Ideally, and it would it would show you some data immediately, but the kind of the user experience expectation has shifted now. People don't want to wait, you know, looking at blank screens while the entire app loads. They want to stare at an app while data loads. 
Yeah, uh, it makes sense. I would add that we actually added that that type of application to the web. We still have like the old school. Yeah. So, uh, for for instance, like a lot of times we have uh, pages that have like SEO concerns, right? We need to. Uh, yeah. It's it's more like a page than than a than a than an application, right? We still expect performance to be good enough uh, in a way that it's difficult to, to, to get without some server-side rendering, right? So you have like the data fetching in the server, you generate your HTML and send it to the, to the user. But the thing that is interesting in the React world is that the two types of, of, of data fetching, they are, uh, they are almost like the same, right? When, when you server-side render your React application, you're actually like fetching the data in an initial state that ideally would also work if you just send the, the React uh, app without server-side rendering to, to the client, right? So it's yeah. like almost like a decision we make. Of course, in the real world, it's not that simple, but conceptually, it's it's uh, very similar. Yeah, so I guess the big difference is that you, we've decoupled the user experience from the technology to be, you're not locked in because of your mm-hmm. tech choice. Yeah, so... When you work, like in your experience, when you work with with front end applications, are you uh, since like this uh, interplay between front end and back end is is strong? Like how 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 much do you touch the back end? Like how how actively do you do you do you work on the back end parts that are serving data to your to your front end application? I guess it kind of depends how your team is structured and whether or not you consider yourself a full stack developer or whether you're you know, your application that you're working on puts you in that p- position. I would say for the most part, like the larger the team, you know, the less that you'll be touching the back end as a front end developer and the smaller mm-hmm. the team, uh, the more you'll be, you know, touching the back end. That's a general generalization, of course, but that kind of seems to be uh, what I've seen in, in my experience. And, you know, for, for people that are dealing with the more complex front ends, you know, we're really typically not really working with the backends because we have so much work to do on the front end and we're so specialized. And a lot of times when you get into the point in your career where you are very, very good at what you do and you're specialized, they want you to be working on uh, one thing and, and, and one thing that you're good at. And that's typically, you know, building out these complex single page uh, applications. Um, what's interesting to me though, and, and especially for me, because now I'm working at AWS and I'm working with a lot of serverless technologies is we're seeing um, some of these serverless technologies kind of positioned as easy ways for front-end developers to start building full-stack apps because all of these, a lot of the back-end complexity is abstracted away and you're also writing JavaScript and you're working with APIs and you're not actually dealing with a lot of the infrastructure and things that a lot of back-end developers and DevOps people, you know, used to have to, to deal with. Yeah, it's partly the the problem of, you know, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So if you identify yourself as a server-side person, then you're naturally going to to want to have a server. <laughs> I was going to say, is the hammer JavaScript in this example? <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> I think it's, it's interesting because it seems like this move towards JavaScript everywhere makes it makes it easier to move between front end and back end too. Whereas, you know, maybe in the past you had to juggle between, you know, now I'm writing Ruby, now I'm writing JavaScript, and now you can sort of, I mean, depending on your stack, of course, 
Um, not like everyone's on JavaScript, but sometimes it's easier. Yeah. yeah, it's super interesting to see the emergence and the growth of JavaScript. Like everyone has, um, there's so many things that people have that are wrong with the language, but we see it uh-huh. just continue yeah. to explode. It's kind of crazy, you know, um, that so yeah. many things are now like first class JavaScript. It works. Yeah, it works. It works well enough for most applications. So it's just like conquering everything. It also makes really good business sense because then you, you, you don't have to be expert at hiring all these people from different kind of camps and tribes and having to make them all work well together. You can kind of, you know, get off the shelf JavaScript person and just throw them on different teams and hope it works mm. great. Yeah, hope it, yeah, because even though the language is, is JavaScript, uh, the platforms are different and you yeah. need a lot of platform-related uh, knowledge. It's, it's the same with like React and React Native, right? You yeah. think that you're just going to, oh, I do a lot of React. Let me do some React Native now. It's going to be so easy. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it, the same thing with like Node and like browser. JavaScript. Oh yeah, there is always like one thing and another. So you were talking about separating the front end and the back end in different companies. I worked in two companies that were almost like in an opposing way. So today I work in a full stack uh, kind of teams. Uh, so we have in each team people they're dealing with from the database layer to, to the CSS in the same team. So we kind of, it's what they call like feature teams, right? So one team is... If I'm doing some uh, a feature, we should be able to to develop the whole the whole like vertical of the future of the feature inside the team. So the teams are more like business theme related. And I've worked in a company that like I was in the front end team of a particular product. So we t- like we didn't touch like any server uh, side code. And today I see like pros and cons with both. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I thought the feature teams were like better, always better, but I see some things that they were really good when separating. So a couple of pros and cons, like for feature teams, it's really good to have independence in terms of business. Like if business want to implement one, one feature, they go to one team. Like I remember that like we would like talk with the other, the backend teams about a feature and then like some issues in their sprint and they would create this back-end uh, changes. And then the next sprint, we would work on it on the front-end. And a lot of times, like, they needed to do some work. And it would go back to their next sprint. So things would take a long time because we were always, like, yeah. trying to fit work in the different sprints for back-end and front-end. So this is, like, a really big con. On the other hand, when you have, like, a back-end team that their, their deliverable is, like, an API, I think that the APIs were so much cleaner between the different teams. So like it was so easy to just create like a new front end that would consume those APIs. I feel that like in a, in a feature team, when you own the full stack, a lot of times you end up like, okay, this API can have like this weird interface because like I am the one creating the clients in the front end. So like I can deal with this weird part of the of the API because I'm the one going to consume the API anyway. So like I can deal with the weird part on both. So I think that feature teams end up with like weirder interfaces than when teams are well separated. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I have the, I've had the same experience. I worked on a, at a company that had 
feature teams like that. And it, in our case, it was Java on the back end, like Spring MVC, and then just like jQuery type stuff in the in the front end. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, I mean, juggling between the two, I felt like you needed to be pretty good at, at two different sort of different skill sets, I think. You know, you've got the, the front end side where you're doing everything visually and then the back end mm-hmm. where you're doing data modeling and SQL queries and trying mm-hmm. to like tune your SQL queries and stuff. It's very different skill sets that you that don't often overlap. And I think it's it's tough to be good at all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the other problem, like you were saying, Lucas, where you know you have a feature in mind and so you're you're sort of thinking of it as I need to build this feature. So how do I get the data and how do I display that data? Mm-hmm. And you munge it all together in your head and you're just like, I need the data to look like this and I'll just make the back end do that for me, you know? Or it's it's and you end up making kind of like an API yeah. that's maybe not as reusable. Yeah, one one good outcome of having like separated front end and back end teams was that like in our hackathons, it was like there were like a yearly hackathon that people were like creating uh, products for for the company. The APIs had like such a good and generic uh, interfaces that people were just like creating front end applications that were ready to be used in production in, in after yeah. three days. Like they, they were like interfacing, not not ready to, to be used in production, but like they, you would not need a lot of work to, to make them production uh, ready because they were you were already like accessing APIs, production APIs in, in the hackathon because the production APIs had like interfaces that were like ready for the world. They, yeah. they didn't have like any particular thing for that particular team. You can kind of go overboard in that direction too. Like if you have really separated, like if there's like a front end engineering team and there's like a back end engineering team, they're both building APIs that that like a completely separate product teams are are using. Mm -hmm. The the danger there is that those APIs might be completely disconnected from reality of what actually needs to be in reality. So they're building all these APIs guessing what product teams might need and then they end up like top down dictating like this is how you're going to build your app and, and really painting you into a corner but yeah. when you're when you have feature yeah. teams when you have product teams that let, they're focused on like delivering value to real people in the real world but then if you have it's all feature teams and you don't have anybody focused on and incentivized and you know gold mm-hmm. on having clean APIs perfect then, it becomes trash so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So so this is the trade-off. The the, the way we try to navigate in uh, here uh, at, at my work today on that part is that like front-end people, we have like a, a heavier hand on the siding on the interface. So in our case, we use GraphQL. We uh, have like a heavier hand on the side the interface, uh, and and. It's it's almost like the, the the GraphQL is owned by by us in the front end, and then we interface with like the different services of the back end. And it's interesting that you said that you mentioned the AWS products, uh, the serverless products, uh, Nader, that that you're working with because it's similar to 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 that thing. It's like you you can define your your interface right and then you are creating those data sources according to the interface that was defined by the by the front end i think it's, it's like, an interesting like sweet spot maybe yeah i think that, like sort of in thinking in in terms of separation of concerns like 
each side separates concerns differently, maybe, right? And like the front end and the back end think about things differently. So the best way to organize your data or your database might not be the best way to organize your data for the front end. Oh, 100%. And my, right? And yeah. so there's some, there's some massaging not, to do yeah. there. And where do and you my, do it? It right? might be not the best way to, 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 to send messages over the wire to like... Yeah, right. Yeah, we have some legacy enums, C sharp enums here until today. Like that should definitely be like strings. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, do you think this conversation kind of leads us to the discussion of Rust versus GraphQL? Because when you think about it, we're just accessing Rust endpoints, or that's what we've typically done in the past, mm -hmm. and we don't really have a lot of control over you know what comes back. Uh, if we overfetch, we end up taking the data, you know, cleaning it up on the client and then serving whatever we'd like to use. Or if we underfetch, we end up making multiple API calls. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, yeah. you know, that seems to be where GraphQL shines and is starting to become, you know, more, more and more popular, really. Yeah. Because yeah. really the, the problem space that is the purview of the front-end engineering team is the user experience, implementing the best possible user experience and you know, what technologies you use, any, anything that could possibly affect user experience is, has to be owned by the people who own that problem space. And, you know, REST versus GraphQL is absolutely in the purview of that situation. Because if you're overfetching, underfetching, that has a seri serious implications, uh, especially if you have, you know, the possibility of like going to like 2G networks, depending on, you know, where people are, you know, mobile first, all this stuff. So GraphQL is totally a front-end engineering-oriented thing. I mean, you can still, you know, implement that on the client in the short term and that it's actually using REST APIs. But, mm -hmm. you know, you really need to, to make intentional choices with, you know, what is affecting real people in the real world and affecting the metrics that you care about. Yeah, the, the, the GraphQL uh, versus REST thing is uh, maybe even a large thing. It's like a middleware, like are middlewares uh, a good solution for, for this problem? And GraphQL, GraphQL is just like a, a, a good protocol for, for this middleware, right? And the fact that it's, yeah. that, that it's a good standard, you can have like good tool, tooling around it. You can create uh, middlewares that generate backends for you like the, the app sync stuff. But I think that the, the issue of the middlewares is, is interesting and underfetching is probably like 99% of, of the problems that I had. It's like no REST API that my application touched solved my problem 100%. I always needed to get data from more than one API and usually using the response from the previous one. So <laughs> right. I, would yeah. have, I would have all that transaction the issue that like, okay, so we're going like over the wire with all these network requests that some should be parallel, some, be, some should be, that was like a nightmare. So yeah. like in the e-commerce world that, that I was working, like when I show a cart of products in, in the page, I should show customer data, should show cart data, I should show product data. And these APIs do not, should not talk among themselves. That's, that's the thing that I was yeah. like, okay, so if they do not talk among themselves, like I need to do all the all the heavy work, 
I know that yeah. this, this keeps them generic. So what I think about REST today is not that REST is bad or GraphQL or other middlewares are good. I just think that REST is usually too low level right. for front-end direct consumption. It's not that it's wrong. It's it, Actually, REST is really good, and, 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 and uh, I, I like the contracts that it has like i like to think about like http verbs and things like that i just think it's too low level it's just like trying to 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 create like a web page with c plus plus i don't know it's like i guess it, it boils down to encapsulation you know where are you in, encapsulating this stuff are you spreading the complexity out all over the front end are you encapsulating all of the data fetching into one unit wherever it lives however yeah, yeah. it's implemented is it a single thing or is it just kind of spread out everywhere? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Depends on your resources maybe too. It's like if you, if you have really independent resources that don't need to, like you don't need to display products with users or whatever, like if you can get away with just displaying the products, then the rest is great for that. Just get the list of products and display it. But yeah, if you start yeah. to need to like annotate things with all this metadata or whatever, then... That's it. Yeah, it gets messy. So the front end is the one needed to, to do all the, the data stitching work. Yeah. So that's why they, they started, at, uh, I, I remember, like, I love the name, it's like BFS, B, BFFs, which are like back end for front end. <laughs> uh, so people started, <laughs> yeah, yeah people, people started like talking about, okay, so let's make a middleware that the, does all the orchestration and the front end, just do like one, request this middleware we're putting all the orchestrating and 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 transforming uh, logic in this middleware and and serves it to the front end so we're separating the two concerns yeah. we're decoupling the front end from the apis so if tomorrow i change like the product api to a new product api or like i create an image api that will serve the image that the product does not need to serve the image it's transparent to to the front end it's like only this middleware needed to to handle it and then graphql came as a second like step as like okay so there is a really cool like generic way of of dealing with this problem so let's all adhere to to this this protocol, which which I think works really well uh, for ninety eight percent of the times. Yeah, one major concern is when you have the possibility of having um, decoupled versioning. Like if you're doing like a native mobile app, um, and if there's a possibility that that people are running different versions of the same client, talking to the very latest version of the back end. Like, how do you make sure that the app that you shipped a year and a half ago, that the server still responds with the data that that version of the app can handle? And how do you like, test that? And have, how do you have certainty that you're not going to break the world? In Rust world or in the GraphQL world? Just in general. That's one, that was kind of like one of the, the core problems that GraphQL was created to solve. Yeah. Actually, to, to be honest with you, I think this problem is kind of solved in the REST world and not like well solved in the in the GraphQL. Like I, I think that this is like a versioning, API versioning problem. And with REST APIs, you just create a new endpoint with a, with a new version. So you, you don't need to kill the, the older versions with REST endpoints. GraphQL, we're almost always like changing the schema so 
it's a matter of like we deprecate some fields, but we cannot remove them because we don't right. know who, who is using. So right, right. You deprecate the, from what I understand. Uh, you know, as far as best practices are concerned, you deprecate fields, then you're able to run uh, analytics and see when fields yeah. are no longer being used, and then you can that's it. Exactly. If I understand properly, and you used to work at Facebook, but this was probably before GraphQL was big there. They don't ever even um, version their their GraphQL API. They've been using the same schema since the very beginning. And they, they just, have to release a, a new version every few minutes because the schema is constantly changing. Right, right. So they're just consistently evolving their schema, and they haven't ever like deprecated an entire version. They just kind of like continue evolving their schema. So, so they're just like correctly. they're just like adding fields and so it's like a gigantic schema today. Yep, that's what I understand. Yeah, we actually had someone from Facebook on the GraphQL Patterns podcast, and that's what I understood. Yeah, it's, wow. it's so. It's, it was really interesting to kind of hear, you know, to hear that. Yeah, that seems to me like an interesting, an interesting pattern. Like deprecate it, put some metrics on it, and if there's still applications hitting it, if you if you really need to remove that field, go find it. But it's it's still weird, right? Because like, how long do you need to observe it? Yeah, on Facebook, yeah, it's a tricky really problem. Yeah, everything about GraphQL is just so different than what I've ever been used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in in the REST world, it's just like a, a, a an npm package. You like version it. As soon as you have like a breaking change, if you're not adding something, if you're if you're removing, you just create a new version. So like v3, like cart v3, you make cart v2 not you let it work the the way it was working before, and you create like a new API a new endpoint, there's a new URL. So if you're still hitting the old URL, you'll get the old, the old response. If you're hitting the new URL, you're getting the new response. So it's just like, it's just like changing to a new library, right? I think it yeah. partly depends on how you structure your company. Mm. Yeah, I guess the other, the other solution is um, to do what, the, what my like, Capital One mobile app does. And every month or two, it's like, you have to install a new version now. And <laughs> <laughs> you can't use it anymore. No update. Yeah. yeah. Facebook doesn't have that option. Like yeah. one tricky issue is like there are people in the world that literally cannot up, update their their apps without physically buying new hardware because there's just not enough space on the device to download the new version and the existing version is baked into the firmware. So there's no way to delete the current version to free up space and there's no way to install the new so you're just stuck. So you have to support that version for the life wow. of the hardware. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Even though I'm not working with Clojure today, I worked with Clojure before. One thing I really like about Clojure is that if you if you listen to the talks of the people developing Clojure and Clojure Script, 
they seem to be like among the group of the smartest yes. people thinking about stuff. <laughs> yeah, I just love like Rich Hickey and and all, all those talks and stuff like that. And I I heard that they are going towards a never delete anything where, like there there's no reason to have a breaking change. Interesting. There's the, so they their their database is the Datomic database, which is an append only database. That it's a database that that does not you, you you cannot edit anything or you cannot delete anything. You're just like changing things is like adding new events and and like so that means that you have everything. You have the whole history, so you can query anything at any point in time by design. Oh, this awesome! Is very, yeah, this is a very hard problem to solve. And they solve like in the database layer with Datomic. So it seems that it's the best like implementation of that. And they were saying, now we're thinking about that, that even with like code, they say like, if you create a breaking change of a library, uh, of a function in a library, they say, why throwing away the previous function? Let people just just use it and, and, and provide a new one, like create a new one. So they name space the functions in the libraries with like the the version so if you're if you're using like an uh, the the v1 namespace it's like okay like it, it's going to be there like i don't, I don't want to break anything like some some systems are just running why why should we break stuff so they're w- going towards like immutability also as an engineering practice there was like we uh, closure used immutability on by, by default in their variables, and they say like, and it's it brought us so much benefits in terms of architecture. Even like, it's peeled back to the front end world. It influenced React a lot and Redux, right? All these patterns of like immutability. Yeah. We know that that it leads to like healthier uh, engineering practices. And they say like, wh- why not like now we brought it to the database and say like, so now we're starting to to bring it to functionality. Like, why delete old, old functions? Why not let them be and create new ones? So this is an interesting thing, uh, thing to, to, to think about. It's like the breaking change only breaks stuff because you chose to break stuff. Why not create a new one? And people start using the new one. Do not delete the old one. Yeah, that, that smells kind of like the GraphQL way is like, mm-hmm. like this field exists forever. It's like maybe have a, a deprecation flag so it doesn't show up in autocomplete or whatever. Yeah, just so so people starting to use it now, like use know that there's a, a, a newer, a better way of doing it. So yeah. the deprecation returns like, okay, so this is deprecated, should not use it. But like, why break it? Like why something that, that is working today should not be working tomorrow? That's kind of like the, the React philosophy as far as like upgrades go. So they support... You know, like mix-ins, I think, even still work. Like, you probably shouldn't be using mix-ins, but if you need to... Yeah. JavaScript. If you think about, like, the web APIs, you you still have, like, sub-STR, even though now we have sub-string. So... (laughs) You could say that maybe this is one of the the reasons of success. Like, I remember people were were talking uh, about Windows that way too. Windows, since like it's a very like enterprise uh, operational system, like in the 1990s, people said that you could in Windows, I don't know, 2000, you could run things from your Windows 3.0. That was like one. uh, A video one time where somebody like, I think it was like Photoshop. They installed like Photoshop one and then they just installed every single like update to Photoshop. 
And it like, it all just worked. Yeah, this is like, that created a lot of uh, garbage in whatever you are using. Like if we think about all those crazy JavaScript, like document.cookie, right? That thing is like, from, <laughs> I don't know, how, like adding a cookie, reading a cookie is so cumbersome, but it's like this, like I'm not going to break the past. So maybe that's an interesting concept, like immutability. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like syscalls are sort of like this too, right? Like the low-level Unix-y syscalls. I, I think there's a few functions that have multiple versions and you'll have like, like um, I'm trying to find examples, but first one that comes up is accept or maybe open. Yeah, I don't know. Accept has like an accept and an accept for and they do different things, but they didn't change the old one because you've got, you know, years and years of code running on yeah. it. So just just give a new make one. a new one. Yeah. It's like um, like when teaching somebody something, it's like you don't want to just run in and attack their current beliefs. You know, you, you teach them the new stuff. They start to rely on that. It's like having two, two crutches. You know, they've been leaning on this one. Their, their existing knowledge, their existing experiences and tools, it works for them. They've been using it for this long. They're going to hold on to it tightly. You try to kick it out from under them. So instead, you give them, here's the new thing. And then once the once they get comfortable leaning on that, they'll throw away the old crap themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm thinking about that now when uh, developing uh, components that are gonna they're going to be shared throughout the company. So usually, uh, so we have this like centralized component SDK SDK style project, right? That has some components that should be the same throughout all the products. And I was thinking now, uh, whenever there was like a breaking change, we would generate like a breaking uh, semver. Mm. And then it's like, hey, everybody, if you're going to update the, 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 the library, be careful because, the, mm. I don't know, the date picker is going to, to break. So here is the change log. And a lot of times, like, you need to change one thing and you would break the other. You know, like, I'm, I didn't want to, to touch the date picker in this. <laughs> And you gotta be so slow. Yeah, yeah. So, so th- this this was like starting to starting to happen. I'm thinking now about why not version components? Why, why should I why should I throw out the previous one if I if I create a breaking change? Why not create like yeah so port? I've got an interesting you know e- example there. I used to work in the old Sun Microsystem buildings mm-hmm. for Sun Microsystems remotely. And then I worked in those same buildings for uh, Facebook after Sun Microsystems was no longer a thing. And they had very different philosophies on how to do their components. Sun Microsystems had uh, versioned components. They would release a new version of their UI library and then everybody would have to manually update to the latest version you know, for each product team. And the Facebook way was like, if you owned this, this component and you were going to change the API, it was up to you to make that change in the entire code base. So they started to do like, um, they invested a lot into code mod technology. So you could just, uh, it was all one mono repo. So you could, as part of your change to the library or the, the component itself, change its usage everywhere in one fell swoop. That doesn't really work in the open source world because there's not one mono repo with every single project and product. The world. In the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But think of how useful that would be if you could just code mod the universe with, mm, well, maybe. <laughs> Great power. 
Spider-Man, save us! <laughs> yeah. We could uh, make a, a, an episode regarding like motor rebel pros and cons too. We had, I think we Maybe had. Maybe not on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. So yeah, going back to, to, to the back end, uh, to the back end part. So agreed that this middleware layer helps us a lot. Who should work on this middleware layer? Should the front end people work in this middleware layer? Should the back end people work in this middleware layer? Should I guess both? It, it boils down to who needs it to exist and who has to maintain it forever. And what would be you know, the exact definition of this middleware layer again? Let's say uh, for the sake of argument, we have a GraphQL server that will give us all the data to our, to, to, to our front end application. This GraphQL server, be it like a normal server that is uh, reaching for REST APIs or a serverless uh, implementation, should this be, be maintained by, by front-end, by people who are actually writing the UI in an ideal world? Imagine that you have an ideal world you can choose. You have like as many tabs with as many skill sets that you, that you want. Like who should own that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like the back-end team. Um, I don't know, but it depends kind of, you know, exactly how that's being built. If it's built using traditional GraphQL technologies, i.e. you're not using an abstraction like AppSync or Prisma or something where you're actually writing the database queries and you're writing the resolvers and you're kind of writing all of the authorization logic and stuff like that, that definitely seems like a back-end back job to me. If you're using something like AppSync or you're using an abstraction that allows you to kind of like build the back-end from your front-end, if that makes any sense, if you've ever used one of these tools before, that might fall into the front-end uh, developers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess yeah. it kind of depends on what tools you're using. Yeah. One major question is like how, is it coupled to your front-end or decoupled? Can you make a change to the yes. front-end without changing it, the middleware layer or vice versa? Because if no, you have to, then it has to be owned by the same team. But Thomas, uh, more or less, like maybe there's another question there, which is like how many front ends are using that that servitude? Right, that's a good because, question. Because yeah, like some you have you have the the data source, and the data source is is, is the data source for like the web version and the app version. So even oh. though a lot of times you need to change things together, you also like need to to talk to. To, to the other team to, to make sure that... If, if you have something that's tightly coupled to multiple products owned by separate teams, you're going to have a nightmare. Like, <laughs> like, like maybe, maybe that. it was a bad idea in the first place. <laughs> wow. Yeah, if it's tightly coupled. Oh, yeah. I'm getting shivers just thinking about it. And then, like, you have, like, multiple ownership, like, multiple teams oh. owning, like... Uh, maintaining. Uh, what about the dirty, the dirty work for for that middleware, right? Who who does it? And contractors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. why they get paid the big bucks. Interns who are going to leave the day later. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm really interested in this conversation because a lot of the a lot of the work that we're doing on my team at, at AWS is kind of like centered around building abstractions that allow front-end developers to do all of this stuff that we're talking about on the back end. So, for instance, 
we have a library called the GraphQL Transform Library that's built into our CLI that allows you to use these directives in your GraphQL schema to do things like add authorization, to add field level fine-grained access control, to add things like um, declaratively building out your resolvers based on um, your definitions of what different operations that you have created, um, and then giving you kind of like a very high-level overview of what you're doing by using these these directives. But we kind of take those directives and build out, you know, a lot more on the back end for you, just kind of assuming, taking, you know, smart assumptions based on like what people are doing. And then from there, you can kind of like go and polish and edit things if you need to make changes. But the broad assumptions are kind of like taken by us. And um, it seems to be, it seems to be pretty popular because, you know, we've, we've had quite a bit of growth uh, and it kind of is opening the door for, front-end developers to build these complex, scalable backends without having to understand mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the complexity around you know, building, building out backends in general. And one thing that I have seen from a move towards things like that is it, there seems to be irrational resistance to it that may be coming from a place of, of just kind of like the irrational resistance to React Native of like people who have all these iOS skills or Android skills, you know, maybe they're they're threatened or feeling threatened, maybe even subconsciously without realizing it. So all these like server side people or, you know, who've had this whole career being experts on the server side, suddenly you have this magical technology that makes their entire career irrelevant. That's going to be terrifying. Yeah, I mean, so... Sorry. You know, I hear that, but I don't. I don't like agree that it like makes their skill set irrelevant. From what what we're actually seeing is there are so many problems that need to be solved in a typical team. Yeah. There's so much work to be done. These tools, to me, are like taking away the type of work that is very, very um, like things that you do over and over and over. So, for yeah, instance, yeah. building out an authentication service, building out a CRUD API, building out you know, some of these things that you kind of do over and over and over for every application, you know, just kind of like automating that basic stuff. So these specialized engineers can actually do more of the important work, which would be anything that doesn't fall into those categories. I understand both both points of view. Like, I understand uh, what you're saying, Nettie, because like, this is like the rational, like actually right. what's happening, what's happening and what what should like your mindset be. But I also understand like the emotional response of some people feeling like threatened. But yeah, this is like technology innovation. Like my my father, he was a sound engineer. He was in the market when when digital started happening, right? When people uh, transitioned from like uh, recording everything tapes to using like uh, the computer to 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 record. And his studio, he built a studio. It was like the first studio in Brazil that was like 100% digital. So his awesome. studio was like, I don't know, maybe it took like $1 million to, to, to build everything. It was like super expensive for, for in today. But previous studios were, were like at least $20 million cost. Ah. So, so this, is the, this is the crazy part. Like people who had a $20 million in equipment, they were saying like, no, I won't. <laughs> it's like, this is really bad. This is going to, they, they were like having these reactions. But on the same time, the next wave of technology made studios that were like $20,000 as good as the one million ones. 
So like the, 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 the innovation. So of course the studio that my father was working uh, in like went out of, was like taken away by the technology uh, rupture. Like uh, I, uh, of course I got sad because like, I love that studio. <laughs> it was like my teen years I was inside the studio. But if you, if you think about, about that now today, like, a lot more people were recording music, a lot more people like this is much more accessible. And then you're not thinking about like how to record your music anymore. You think about like which music I'm going to record, which is probably like a much better thing. Like it's better for music in general that people are thinking about that and not about, oh my God, I don't have a microphone. I don't have access to, to, to a place where I can <laughs> sing and <laughs> my voice will be recorded. It seems to be like it just changes things. Yes, certain things are not the same, but doesn't mean the opportunities aren't still there. And the way that I kind of look at this is what happened when things like Wix and all these these tools came out over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. that allowed people to build their landing pages and their websites easier. I mean, so many people used to come to me when I was uh, studying software engineering and, and learning how to code. And they were like, why are you learning how to code? Like, you could just build a website. Like people aren't going to need your skill set anymore. And five years later, you know, it's we're more in demand than ever. Yeah, when we automate these tasks that are just done over and over and over. We actually free ourselves up to do and create awesome. more. Yeah, we yeah, create, create more. more like uh, think about the search experience. Search experience in the beginning of like the Yahoo days were just browsing, listing, th- listing stuff alphabetically. The fact that, that that work was like more and more and more automated, we have like today like probably 10 times more people work on search experience, 100 times more people work on search experience around the world with like much more specialized needs, much more interesting. The big deal for, for this is that um, is the, the whole issue of updates, of, of staying updated. Like half the population at least is is really, really wants things to be settled and to stay the same for a long time so that you can build expertise in a skill. But the things are moving so fast and the acceleration of change in our industry is moving so quickly that it, it's almost impossible to really build up expertise in anything because by the time you're, you've reached novice level, everything's changed. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like, can anyone say that they're an expert on anything right now unless they're one of the top five percent i mean we we can say that but um in reality we're just learning as we go at least i am (laughs) there's things that we know that we build up knowledge you know this based knowledge of how to to write code and how to you know structure our applications and logic and those types of things but the apis change so fast and things happen so quickly that rarely have I built an application without spending at least half of my time on Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So part, part of it, like, you know, a pro tip for any, any, any people like me listening to this who, you know, I used to get really excited about all the new stuff and I would go and share it with everybody like, oh, look at this new thing that's coming out that's going to make your job irrelevant. And then they would irrationally react with, with fear and hatred instead of excitement. And I was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> know to express things in a slightly different way that's less uh infuriating (laughs) yeah so to kind of wrap things up what what is the conclusion of this conversation (laughs) (laughs) 
to me, it's kind of like understanding that, uh, you know, there's different ways to, you know, to do this type of stuff. But to me, if you, if you're listening and you want to kind of like really get on some next level stuff, look at some of the abstractions that are being built out in the serverless world. It doesn't have to be AWS stuff like I'm working on, but there's a lot of other things out there like Hasura. Uh, there's, um, next JS with, uh, with um, Zite, and they have the, the yeah. now version 2.0 that does serverless functions pretty in an interesting way. There's uh, Hasura, I think I mentioned them, Prisma. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there um, in this space to, to, that kind of like brings the back end down to the front end and allows you to kind of extend your front end skill set to build these full stack apps. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess we'll go ahead and jump to the picks. Let's do it. Before we do that, is, it, is there anything anyone else wanted to touch on? My no, closing notes yeah. for, for this issue is that uh, it's complicated. And don't forget that we're humans and that all humans are irrational. <laughs> Embrace it. <laughs> yeah. Love it. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Do you have any picks? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I have one pick, which is um, my wife just launched a groovytiesquad.com where she's making uh, custom and groovy ties if you have to wear a tie or want to. And my, my other pick is a book that I'm in the middle of reading, uh, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Like, you know, explaining humans to humans as if they were aliens. <laughs> I'm actually reading that book right now. Awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so it's good. awesome. It's it's really long, but it's really good. It's so long. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Plus one on that book. Uh, Lucas, do you have any picks? Yes, I have. I came across this blog by Eric Bernardson. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce his name correctly, but it's such a great blog. And I, I really like this post called Why Software Projects Take Longer Than You Think, a Statistical Model, where he's trying to, yeah, to, to explain in, uh, I, yeah, I, I love statistics too. So he's trying to explain like how the, the nature of project uh, duration makes it that we're really bad at estimating uh, <laughs> Yes, it's a really interesting blog. He talks about the biggest takeaway is like no project can take less than zero days, right? <laughs> so uh, like a, re a project that goes really well, like if you think it's going to take a, a week, if it goes really well, it takes like two days. So you got like three days out of that. A project that you think is going to take four weeks, if it's go really, uh, one week, if 
it goes really bad, it may take like, I don't know, five, six weeks. So the projects that the estimations that go that go well, the project go well, better than the estimation, they are overwhelmed by the estimations that the project goes wrong. They are overwhelmed. And this is like a, a natural probability and statistical conclusion of how durations uh, work. So it's a, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. It's a little bit like sad, but it's like <laughs> it's a really interesting read. So I recommend this post. And he, he the, the whole blog the whole blog is really good. He also has a a post on interviewing, which Ooh. is really good. Yeah, this is my pick. Cool, David. Do you have any picks? Um, I've only got. One this week, but uh, I found this static site generator called Eleventy, which I hadn't heard of before. It's pretty much like Jekyll, but JavaScript. So a little less, I think it's still kind of customizable, but it comes sort of with a lot of defaults out of the box. And it seems like sort of like Gatsby, but if you really just want a blog and something with a bunch of pre-configured stuff for you, it looks like a pretty good option. So start to play around with that. Cool. I keep hearing about it. I've never tried it. I'll have to give it a shot. I love the name. 11D.io. <laughs> yeah, it's great. 11TY.io. So my pick is a book as well. First of all, the book that he that uh, that Thomas chose is really good. And then my, my pick is a book called The Never Hero. And I'm listening to it right now as an audio book with my son. It's kind of like a science fiction book that... Uh, is you know more like along the level of like maybe a teenage science fiction book, but it's actually really good. And uh, another pick, I guess, would be listening to books in the car with your kids. Pretty cool. Oh yeah, stuff to do. Um, and it's you know just a good way to pass the time and bond, I guess. So nice. <laughs> gives you stuff to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it does. We've I've enjoyed it a lot over the, over the years. And Audible is what I use um, for my books. Yeah. I know there's uh, some other options out there as well. Anything so, that, that helps you have like inside jokes with your squad? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we listened to Ready Player One uh, way before the movie came out. So when the movie came out, we were just like all hyped to go watch it together, you know, because we had this thing. And a lot of people, you know, around here hadn't, hadn't read the book. So Any good? The, yeah, it's really good. The book is it's, it's probably one of my favorite books now. Oh, cool. The movie was good too, but the book was just amazing. All right. Well, I think that will wrap up this episode of React Roundup. Thank you, everyone, for uh, being on the panel and for hanging out. My pleasure. Yeah. So it's been fun. That wraps up this episode. We'll see everyone next time. Good night, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.